To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the podcast, I have on Brian Broderick. Brian is the founder of Day Six Arrows. And while he knows a lot about arrows, I don't think we discussed him one time in this podcast. This is all about next level bow hunting, and it's a great conversation. So Brian does not live in the West, but he's been traveling to the West for years hunting elk and mule deer. And he's just got great insight and great insight for somebody that doesn't live in the West and is traveling to. Uh, we talk about that in the podcast, uh, but also the people that live in the West. He, we talk about these outside the box hunting tactics. We talk about hunting elk without calls, uh, how to use calls in like not a standard way or a standard procedure that you always hear about so it's just this this great in-depth conversation it's absolutely fascinating i loved it and i know you guys are going to love it too i want to thank everly stock packs everly stock has a great pack for every different need that you'll come across so i've been running their kite packs for day hunting it's just this great day pack that's lightweight packs everything that i need and then if i kill something i it'll also take heavy loads out of the mountains uh, I've also been using this kite pack as like a quick two, three day hunter uh, for hunting elk with my camp on my back. And I use it that way because the pack's so lightweight, but it'll pack everything I need and pack the weight really well. So I've been using that for overnighters and two dayers. Then I use their little big top for anything two, three days to five days. It's a great pack for that. And then I use their uh, their destroyer for expedition style hunts. Uh, when I'm going 10 days or longer to be able to get everything in that pack and and have what I need for days on end. Uh, their packs are built durable. They pack the weight really well. They've got great designs as far as their waist belt and their size from their shoulder straps to their waist belt is adjustable so it'll fit your frame. Uh, they have a pack for every different need. Uh, it's a great company with a great price point. Make sure to check out Everly Stock if you're in the market for a new pack. I also want to thank Sitka Gear. Sitka builds the best technical mountaineering gear on the planet. This gear really does help me keep out there longer, keeps me comfortable, and keeps me safe. Um, I'm really digging their new insulating layers. So you can check them out. It's their new Kelvin Light. They have a new Kelvin Light jacket. And it's got a great weight-to-warmth ratio. And it's got a weight-to-warmth ratio of like a a goose-down jacket. But then it's got the waterproof qualities of a synthetic, so it'll still keep you warm when it's wet. Uh, they absolutely nailed it with this Kelvin light. The jacket is off the charts, and then they also have my favorite, puffy pants. So this is their, their Kelvin light pants, and they're a three-quarter pant, so they're uh, right below the knee, and below that is, is my gaiters. Uh, but they, they're just a great pant that keeps me warm on the vantage point, around camp, or anytime I stop in the mountains. They've got a different system for every different environment that you'll come up against the West. in the West. They've got um, gear for my hot weather hunts, uh, antelope, early mule deer hunts, hunting Arizona. So they've got that, 
the their lightweight hoodie that's this great breathable uh, lightweight hooded long sleeve shirt. Uh, they've got um, the ascent pants. Like I say, they've got a system for every different climate you're going to come across. Uh, all the way to to mid season to late season, just great gear top to bottom. They're always evolving their their fit and their function. They're evolving their their fabrics. Uh, they're just a, a great company that builds great gear. I absolutely love it. So if you're in the market for any new piece to complete your system, make sure to check out Sitka Gear. And with that. Uh, make sure to check out everything we have going on over there at Eastman's. Check out the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. I've got some good articles coming up in those. Uh, check out our internet TV show. You can find that at Eastman's Hunting TV. Just search that on YouTube and it'll come up. There's some great episodes on there. And then uh, also uh, Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. And uh, I've got a couple good episodes that'll be coming up. I'm not sure where they'll be yet, but I'll make sure to let you guys know. But I've got, uh, I filmed that that early Nevada hunt this year, um, it, which was a great hunt in the mountains, just absolutely all in. And uh, then I also filmed uh, an, another deer hunt that I went on, uh, early season deer hunt. Uh, that the, the one where I missed that buck at 20 yards, I've got great footage of it. <laughs> and it just, I watched it one time, but it'll kill me to relive at this point. But I, uh, I did find redemption on a really good buck on a perfect shot. So I was able to capture all that on video. Those will be coming out. I'll make sure to let you guys know where they're at, uh, when we release them here. I got to get all my footage sent over. I've got it all compiled here, but I uh, got to get it sent over so they can put it together for me. But just some awesome stuff coming up from us over at Eastman's. And um, man, with that, let's get into this podcast. This is a great podcast. Uh, so Brian Broderick from Day Six Arrows. Uh, I'm Brian Barney, your host, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Okay, I'm live here. I've got Brian Broderick. Uh, I've just met Brian. He's the the founder of Day Six Arrows. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time and joining me on the podcast. Oh man, I'm super excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we're um, absolute kindred spirits. Uh, we've already had about a 40 minute phone conversation where I should have hit record at the beginning, but uh, <laughs> you love to bow hunt, don't you? I do. I do. It's about the only thing I've ever been good at, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a good thing to be good at. Uh, it's so fulfilling, isn't it? Just the adventure, uh, the, 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 the sense of gratification when you, when you do get it right. It's so challenging and so tough. It, it means so much to guys like us. It, it sure is a fun endeavor that I, I'm so fortunate that I found, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Uh, it's for sure. It certainly has kept me out of trouble and um, 100% has given me, you know, great perspective on, you know, all the other facets of my life. So uh, I, I would probably be in pretty rough shape if I didn't, you know, have bow hunting as an early part of my life. So um, definitely uh, kind of contribute all any success or anything I've, you know, ever experienced to, to being a bow hunter. So, man, that's amazing. It it teaches us so many great life lessons that we can apply in other facets of our life, doesn't it? Well, it teaches us, I think, the most important one, which is humility. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Because it is certainly humbling. 
Oh, man, around every corner. And just when you think you have it figured out, that's where it'll humble you the most. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so challenging. So so where are you based out of, Brian? Well, I, uh, I live on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, um, on the eastern shore of the Mobile Bay. Um, and uh, um, spend quite a bit of time out west uh, every fall and, and – um, I think I made my first trip out in 1991, uh, the fall after I graduated from high school, and um, spent uh, 21 days uh, in the Gila down in New Mexico, um, uh, getting daily doses of humility. And, um, <laughs> but, I, but I got some lessons and came back and uh, applied some strategies to improve on those lessons that I'd learned. And ever since then, I've been pretty much spending most of the month of September and some of October living out of my truck out there somewhere. Man, that's amazing, Brian. You were doing it before it was cool or the hot thing to do, and and you were doing it before there was any information out there uh, uh, to come out west and to learn these units. That had to be a wild adventure just out of high school, immersing yourself in it. Like, uh, I can see why, you, why you're so hooked on hunting out west. Well, it was, uh, it was definitely a different game. Um, there was no internet, so therefore there was no, you know, Google Earth and Onyx, and uh, there were no forums and no social media. Um, you just basically would write uh, a letter and put your check in the mail to get your Forest Service maps, and then you would send your, you know, form with your little boxes checked for your topo maps to USGS with your check. <laughs> And you'd snail mail it out and they would snail mail it back. And then you'd study the maps and think, man, I've got this wired. And then drive 30 hours and park and look straight up and go, oh, boy, this is way bigger than I thought it was. (laughs) (laughs) Those maps are certainly flat compared to the, the, the actual terrain. So it was a bit of a learning curve, but gosh, it was fun. And, um, man, just. I wouldn't I wouldn't trade any of the failures for one more success. It was that much fun learning and learning the hard way. Man, you're so right. Uh, it seems like we learn so much from our failures and they're a prerequisite to success. Like you have to go through that as a bow hunter to see the other side. And um Sometimes it can take you to your wit's end or uh, really frustrate you, but it, it seems like you go home and you reset and you think about things. And, and I love thinking of how I could improve, improve or how I could be better or what I could do different. And uh, I'm sure you did a lot of that uh, every trip that you came back, uh, how you could be more effective and more efficient. And, you know, the neat thing was back then – like you say, there there was nothing to read or nothing to to research other than your own experiences to try to to try to figure it out. It had to be so fulfilling, uh, you know. Once you started to get pretty dialed in on it and see some success. Yeah, it was the 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 first year that I hunted out west uh, down in New Mexico. I had no idea that I had drawn one of the best units in the country i had no idea and and i drew that unit three out of five years i haven't drawn it since but you know that was 29 years ago when i first did this and so um i had no idea that i was hunting the best 
you know, that it could, that it could be. I just thought it was always that way. And so as I figured out what I was doing wrong after the first year, you know, I missed three bulls, uh, because there was no, there were no range finders back then. So you had to judge yardage. You had to learn and practice judging yardage, just like you did shooting your bow. And so, you know, I, I open country, giant animals coming from the east, the southeast, just hunting whitetails and hogs. You know, the, the bull standing at 50 looked like he was at 30. And so I, I shot under three really nice bulls the first year and messed up a lot of other things, had no clue what thermals were. And, I, you know, just this incredible learning experience. But I really dug into it. And then when I came back, uh, I was armed with a little bit more knowledge from the first trip and had a really successful second year out there. And then I thought, well, man, this is this is easy. I'm going to do multi-states. I'm going to start where the season opens earlier and I'm going to hunt up around Idaho and move into Colorado and then come down and hunt, you know, 10 days in New Mexico. And so I thought, oh, this is nothing to it. So then my third year as a Western hunter, elk hunting, <laughs> I actually went to what the real public land hunting <laughs> is all about <laughs> and started all over and got, you know, kicked out in the mud and had to dig myself out again. So, um, it, it, it was, <laughs> it was an incredible learning experience. I thought I had it wired year two, and then I went to real over the counter public land and it was not so much. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to start over, but, uh, pretty much been doing that ever since, you know, uh, there, there were times where I spent maybe 40 straight days, you know, out there, uh, between different States and just going from spot to spot. So, um, it just, uh, it was an incredible adventure and, um, it was an incredible way to, to, uh, to learn the Western hunting, you know, by yourself on your own with no shortcuts. You just had to, you had to learn it the hard way. And, but like we spoke about earlier, it, it just builds an incredible foundation, um, that you can build upon. And, and, uh, I hate it that guys um, have the incredibly positive uh, of having so many resources at their disposal, but also I hate it that it's such a negative that they miss, you know, steps one through five. You know, they start halfway up to ten. Um, I just feel like that's really cheating a lot of guys out of the experience uh, of becoming a bow hunter and understanding, you know, all the, you know, all the details from the ground up. I just, I wish more people had that, that experience, you know, but it's just not the way it is anymore. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a different day and age and you take me right back to memory lane and I wasn't, you know, I came in right at the end of the era that you're talking about where we didn't have range finders and you had to be good at judging yardage. And then, you know, there just wasn't a, a lot of forums or information on on Western hunting and, and what units were good. But figuring all that out and also there was no Onyx. There was no base maps. There was no GPS. It was all oh. – um, you know, you had to figure out how to read maps and how to access different country. But, you know, that was the good old days, too, because 
just like you drawing that that unit those three times, you know, I was able to go to the some of the best mule deer places in the country and hunt these really good units that I could draw with a bow and arrow. Nobody was hunting them, and so I could draw them every other year. So I got this great experience hunting these great places. Uh, but yeah, things have changed and evolved, and you know, there's there's a whole different set of challenges. You know, nowadays that that you're used to as well, because you're just as passionate about bow hunting now as you were when you started. But now, you know, it's the, you know, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of guys that are willing to go really hard and put in a lot of effort. And there's a lot of information on the good units out there. And, and, and so, you know, everybody's applying for these good units and these good opportunities where you almost got to search out the hidden gems. And, and then, you know, I, to, in, you know, now I'm starting to almost believe like it's um, there's good units throughout the West, and it's not it's not drawing the best unit or going to the best place. It, it's really improving your skill set to be able to go into these units and turn up quality critters, and then be able to to try to seize your opportunity and be good when you get the chance. And so, it's definitely changed, but the the core principles. I think are still the same in bow hunting. And I, I think there's just still great bow hunting to be had. And it, it's still a challenge and still extremely difficult. It's just changed over time. Well, I, I think you touched on something that is super important is the difference between the guys that are incredibly consistent and the guys that have a lot of almost stories is capitalizing on your opportunities. And so you know, doing this for 30 years, what I've come to realize is, is the same guys are going to be successful every year. And it, it doesn't really matter where you drop them. If they get one opportunity, they're going to capitalize on it. And you can put them in a incredibly, you know, just some great unit. Um, and they're going to capitalize on the first opportunity that they get as well. So it doesn't matter if they get one or 10 opportunities, they're going to capitalize. And so that's kind of the difference. And, you know, I feel like if, if, if guys would focus more on um, becoming a better woodsman and, and uh, understanding animal behavior, really taking a deep dive in, you know, how do I turn up a, a buck or a bull in this unit with all of this other pressure? Because all I need is one instead of going, man, it's, it's, it, there's too much pressure. There's too many people. I'm never going to get it done. You're, you know, it's, you're just looking for one opportunity, but you've got to put yourself in a position to where when that opportunity is there, you've eliminated all those percentages of, of a chance of failure. Um, and that's, basically what I've done over the last 30 years is just continue to simplify my system instead of complicate it. And that's been the key to success. I mean, as far as my gear goes, buddy, if I could weld everything to my bow and not have a single moving part, screw spring, I'd be a happy clam. <laughs> um, seriously, I, yeah, I just, yeah, know, absolutely. I, I want 0% chance of failure. And it's probably why I've you know, gravitated towards the, the traditional bow for, you know, for so long, uh, just because it, you almost have to try to screw that up, you know? So, um, but it all, every unit, uh, just about every unit that holds animals 
has a good, good bull, has a good buck in it. It has those spots that if you put the work in, you can find and have an opportunity to kill a good animal. And it's just how much do you want to put into it and how strong is your foundation that's going to allow you to figure out, you know, and crack the code and, and sort it out and, you know, get put yourself in a position. Um, hunting around people, that's just a reality now. It doesn't matter how good the unit is. They're, they're, you're, you're spending more time, you're going to spend more time navigating around the pressure than you are the animals. That's just the, you know, hard facts, you know. Yeah, that's uh, such great insight. And you're right. That's what I always try to think is uh, no matter how many people, the the animals are still in that unit. And it's my job to figure out where they're refuging, where they're finding, you know, little pockets away from pressure. And it seems like when you find elk, they're away from the people. And the majority of times when I find elk, I have them to myself to play on because they found those remote areas in the unit. And and you're right about populations. They're not spread out all the way throughout the unit. There's there's hot spots and pockets, uh, you know, where there there's condensed numbers of them, you know, and and it's our job to try to figure that out. And I, man, you're just spoken like a true bow hunter about seizing those opportunities. And I I love what you said about welding. I didn't mean to laugh when you said weld everything to your bow, no moving parts. It's so smart, like you, you know, and and I'm. I'm into the technology and I'm, you know, fall away rests. I'm into moving sites and putting, holding my pin right on the animal. But there's a lot of truth in what you said that every moving part, you're, you're giving yourself a chance of things going wrong. And, and it's, you can test that moving part. You can shoot your bow a thousand times, but any piece that moves on your bow is an opportunity for things to go wrong and out, you know, in, in the field, in, in the dust and in the rain and in the snow, you know, there, there's just factors that you can't control. And yeah, if you've got a bunch of moving parts, it's an opportunity for things to go wrong. So I, I, I love what you said about that as well. Um, and that it's almost like a, a mentality. And so I'm, I'm so happy to get you on the podcast being that you've gravitated towards traditional bows. And I know you use both and, um, but the traditional bows, it's such a mindset to get close to to it's it's like you have to continue pushing the game or evolving the game looking knowing that you have to get inside 30 yards or whatever that distance is but but it's achievable you just it's just a mindset and i think more guys would see success with these compounds bows like these things are amazing nowadays the accuracy and having range finders and where you can shoot but the, the game is still the same. It's to get close and kill that animal. It's to get close enough to where you're 100% sure that you can kill that animal. And and that's really where a lot of my bow hunting success is that I just don't, you know, I, I don't uh, settle for a long shot or a shot that I'm unsure if I can make. Like when I take a shot, I know 100% that I'm going to hit that animal right where I'm aiming. At least that's the goal, you know, but the, the game is still to get close and kill them. So I... I had just have so much respect for you guys that have committed yourself to traditional archery for these hunts because it's a it's another degree of difficulty for sure. It, it is, but you know, there's really not any separation or you know differentiation between how I hunt with a compound or a stick bow. Um, I look at uh, 
the range and the, you know, I, I look at that as much as I look at uh, the gear, the moving parts, things like that. As you extend that range that you're going to try to take a shot on an animal, you're increasing your odds of failure. Um, if you have the mentality of, if I can get any animal within 30, you know, I'm 99%. Well, why, why not, you know, have that same philosophy, uh, as you do with your gear where I don't want to have any chance of failure. Well, the same way with your, your range and your ethics, it's at the end of the day, the, 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 the technology is what causes as much failure or lack of success than any, anything else. I, I would, I would attribute that as high on the, on the scale or the chart of things that contribute to failure as wind, because I've watched so many guys grab their rangefinder and raise their rangefinder and range an animal 20, 30 times. And they end up getting pinched and the animal blows out. I've seen so many guys trying to get that perfect range. And then the animal takes a few steps and gives them a perfect opportunity to kill it. But they've got their rangefinder in their hand. And then I've seen so many guys dialing their sights, making these adjustments. And there's a distinct difference between shooting animals and foam. And you can do all that on the 3D range. You can take your time and you can dial it up. But when a bull's pushing cows down a hill and he's going to hit two gaps in front of you, and you know that those that, that bull's going to pass between 30 and 40, you need to be dialed in to be able to take that shot regardless of where he passes through and be able to kill him. And I treat my bows the same way I treat my rifles. Um, uh, you know, I have the, you know, my, my max point blank range, if you will, or, you know, I, I know what the trajectory, you know, trajectory of, my, of my arrow is. Uh, I shoot the same speed and same weight arrow year after year after year. So I know that, you know, if I'm sighted in or my pin's dead on at 30 and the bull runs out to 40 or 45, I know what my arc is. I know what my drop is. I know the trajectory of that, that arrow. And so I can make an adjustment without having to a middle adjustment and a holdover adjustment without having to make a mechanical adjustment. And to me, that's, that's the key of capitalizing on your opportunity. And if you're fidgeting with all this stuff, trying to get that perfect scenario, you know, it's, it's one out of 10, you're going to make it happen. Um, but you know, you shorten your range, keep everything within, you know, a reasonable distance, you know, 50, 40, whatever, and in, and you know, your trajectory, you know, you can, you can make some pretty lethal shots very quickly, um, which is normally how it has to happen. <laughs> they just don't stand still for you. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. Oh, they don't. You're right. You got to have those those killer instincts, and then you also have to be comfortable with being in bow range and making those moves and knowing what you can get away with and what you can't. But it is a fine line between 
seizing an opportunity and uh, like like forcing it or taking a shot where you don't have the right angle or you don't like um you know we, we just learned or I've learned some hard lessons being a bow hunter where on elk. I don't take a quartering towards shot. I just won't take it. I just elk are such a tough animal. I know you have a ton of experience hunting elk, but I almost treat elk as I need to make a better shot than other animals. Some people see elk and say, "Oh, it's a big target." You know, their their vitals are 12 inches, but if you don't hit lungs, heart, or liver, those elk are so tough they get away. And I know before I killed one of my bulls this year, I had two shooter bulls and two separate opportunities. And one was the bull that I killed that I had in bow range for over 10 minutes, but he just didn't give me the right angle. So you bring up a really good point. We work so hard to get in range of these animals, but that's only half the battle. The other half is getting the shot and they have a knack for making the right moves or never stopping or mistakes that I see guys make is like where they draw their bow and then they try to make this big movement around a tree to get the shot or they let the cows see him making this big move to try to get that shot on that bull or maybe the bull's looking at him and they try to draw anyways instead of just waiting for that bull to lax or put his head down feeding or start moving after those cows again like i think um seizing those opportunities for me is also an exercise in patience of waiting for the right opportunity and then trying to see it, like not trying to force it in too tight of a window with branches. I've tried to do that before and nick a branch and my arrow flies off. Like it's it's really waiting for the right opportunity, but then seizing it when you see it. Uh, would you agree with that, Brian? A hundred percent. You know, for me, patience uh, was a very hard thing um, to develop when it comes to hunting. Well, fortunately, just geographically where I've, you know, grew up and, and been hunting since I was a little boy, we have extremely long seasons and incredible game populations. And, you know, the, the level of opportunities, the number of opportunities that I have in a season could sometimes match what people have in their entire hunting career out West. And from those experiences and mostly failures, you, you learn that patience is, is probably one of your sharpest tools. Uh, you know, uh, it's one of your sharpest arrows in your quiver because what I've learned is, is that the shots that I've forced are thinking, uh, he's going to get away. He's going to get away. They usually get away and it's not a good situation anyway if you force it with what I've learned by exercising more patience is, is once you're in that animal's zone, as long as you're not detected and the conditions are right, if you're patient, normally a better opportunity presents itself. And I learned this really whitetails taught this lesson to me more than anything, because especially rutting whitetails are in always in movement, you know, they're just constantly moving and you're trying to find that, you know, that, that little window to get that shot off. And what I learned through patience is, is that normally these animals will push and go into the frenzies, whether it's bull, bull elk or mule deer or whitetails or whatever, but then they'll usually do it for a little bit and then stop. And then everybody will feed a little bit and kind of chill out. And then you get this incredible opportunity. And a lot of times 
the deer that I think, oh my gosh, if this deer gets away, it's going to be the end of the world, <laughs> or this animal gets away, it's going to be the end of the world. A lot of times, once I've exercised a little patience and restraint, a bigger animal, or a bigger buck, or a bigger bull appears or shows up that you just didn't know was there, and you've you know got a better opportunity than what you thought was possible. And so, patience to me is is probably seriously it's probably the sharpest arrow in the quiver for me i couldn't agree more yeah that that patience uh you stated it keeping that element of surprise like not giving yourself away and the longer you play the game it's amazing the opportunities that you create and even with shadowing an elk herd instead of trying to force the stock in on them or force the situation if you just continue to stay with them it's amazing the the places they'll put themselves in or the bad situations they'll put themselves in that you can capitalize on. Same thing with mule deer. And I, I try to to never stock to failure. Like I never want to stock to where I blow that deer out of there or stock, you know, too close. Like it's almost like you just take what the animals will give you or what the terrain will give you for the time. And then you have to be patient and let things develop a little bit more. And you have to be okay with letting that whitetail walk out of your life or letting that bull walk out of your life and go, I'm not going to take a long shot. I'm not going to take a shot I can't miss. I'm going to let him walk away, but he doesn't know I'm here. I still have the element of surprise. Now I'm going to continue to play the game, and you might find that a day later or uh, 30 minutes later, this bull offers a shot. And you know the exact same, you know, my biggest bull to date this year, uh, I was on him the night before for two and a half hours, and and there just wasn't a good play to be made. He had three satellite bulls and twenty head of cows, and um, you know the wind didn't lend itself to the terrain that he was in, and so I was just patient. I just waited and I just watched, and I showed up back that next morning at five a.m. And that bull was still in there because I didn't push it to failure. I didn't try to do, you know, uh, uh, a stock that wasn't going to work. Like I could see it, found him the next morning. And then I waited the next morning as I let him feed in the meadow. And in my younger days, in my bow hunting career, I just would have worked in and tried to make something happen or tried to force it. And I would have blown the situation up. But but through years of bow hunting that just keeps teaching teaching us those those patience and to, you know, I just sat behind the hillside with a good win, and I watched him in the bottom and said, you know, maybe it'll be tonight before I get a chance. But they just happen to move into a good spot, and then it's time to capitalize. And I hunt aggressive, but I, I'm only taking what those animals will give me, and I'm trying to never give myself away or, like, like trying to cheat a wind. I've learned my lesson so many times trying to cheat a wind that I just know – that I can't, and so I just don't make that mistake anymore. At least I try not to. Uh, but but yeah, you just bring up such good points. Uh, you can tell you've been bow hunting a long time and learning from all your experiences. Well, and mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I hear well, you there. I, uh, shadowing the last cow, uh, that has been uh, you know a strategy for me that's just really paid off over the years. Uh, just lagging back, hanging back following the herd, just keeping eyes on the last cow and basically shadowing that last cow or that last elk in the herd. It's, it's amazing that once you start getting to where they're going to start, you know, finding somewhere to stop for the day, it seems like 
so many times you have an opportunity where the bulls will circle back around and try to gather everybody up and bring everybody in. And if you've just, you know, been very patient and just kept eyes on the last cow, so many times that bull has come back and they hear, you know, you breaking a branch or rolling rocks, which is breaking branches and rolling rocks has been way more successful than me than blowing on horns and elk calls. Um, but as that bull's coming back to circle that last cow and you're, you know, rolling a few rocks and breaking branches, he just kind of circles back a little bit further thinking, oh man, there's one more back there. And you've never alerted them to your presence. You've never, you know, blown a call in their face. You've never done anything but waited for that opportunity when he's casually coming back to do what he does every single day. And you just, you know, make your, make sure that you're in the zone and in the game with them and, and the opportunity presents itself. I mean, it's, it's no different with, you know, deer or elk in my mind, or really anything, uh, especially when it comes to, to rutting animals. I, I, um, I definitely went through a mule deer craze for a, a long time and I remember one thing that sticks out really, really sticks out distinctly in my mind is I remember seeing this group of, of mule deer does and these two young bucks just working these does, chasing, I mean, full rut as hard as they could go. And I just saw this group and they were about 80 yards from me. And I said, there's just too many hot does. I mean, you could tell there were multiple hot does in this group. And I said, there's just, there's too many hot does in there that there's not a mature buck close. And I just stayed on that group of deer for four or five hours. And they just stayed in this one little area. And eventually, you know, one of the bigger mule deer I've ever killed, you know, came slipping out. He could see him too, but he just, you know, he came slipping out and slipped by me at 40 going to him. But it's, you know, patience and staying in the game and not blowing the deal up uh, and trusting your instincts. That I mean, that's what gets animals killed is having yourself in their zone and let them make the mistake. Um, so many people force it and they make their own mistakes and just no reason to really do that. Boy, you're absolutely spot on. It it takes a while to develop that kind of patience, and um, it seems like experience is the best teacher, isn't it? And after you you mess up a few of those, it just seems like you move slower and more methodical, and um, you, you just try not to give yourself away. But I, I love your approach to bow hunting. Um, that, that's just absolutely spot on. That's how a lot of the critters die that I'm after, too, is just make that mistake and i um i, I want to bring attention to what you said about rolling those rocks or breaking those sticks for that elk uh i hadn't really keyed into that but you're right they do that every day of their life to round up that harem and so like hearing a couple like noise isn't a bad thing in the elk woods a lot of times they just think you're elk and so i love what you said like shadowing that last cow and then busting a couple sticks or rolling a rock down a hill or you know, I've had buddies that have done really good with just scraping a tree where they've never made a call, but they kind of scrape a tree on the backside of that herd and that bull come checks them out. But I just love what you said about shadowing that last cow and then rolling a couple rocks or that stick and having that bull come back around to check you out. Um, 
I think that's a great tactic that you mentioned there and something that I haven't really keyed into, uh, but I definitely will in the future. Well, if you think about it, um, think about when you're in the middle of it, you find yourself, uh oh, I've gotten too close and you're in the middle of an elk herd. You can only see a few of those elk. You know, you're seeing ears and backs and, you know, different parts of these elk moving through the, you know, through the timber or the brush or whatever you're in. You can't see the whole herd as a rule once they kind of get into cover. You know, in the aggregate, you're just seeing parts and pieces of everybody. Well, you know, a bull is not, he doesn't have a radar. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily know where everyone is. He doesn't have a dot where every cow is and where every young, you know, spike or whatever is. So he just knows just like we do that, that man, I'm surrounded. There's, there's moving parts everywhere. So for him, it's, you know, natural to hear rocks rolling and hooves hitting rocks and branches breaking and because he knows that his group is around him he just doesn't know exactly where everyone is so if you're in their zone and you're making the same noises that they're making in his mind you're just another part of that group um and if your wind is right you know you just you've kept yourself in the game it, it unfortunately the, the the hunting industry has pushed us into this uh, being very vocal and calling, 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 and all these techniques and all these certain specific, you know, bull calling cows call that works nine, ten, nine times out of ten, and all this other stuff. It's just not the way it works on public land. Um, you know, if you want to go hunt one of the premier private ranches that has, you know, a dozen hunters a year on 250,000 acres you're going to be able to go do that and experience that where we hunt um you're basically sounding the alarm and there is a time and place for calling but i just think it needs to be used a lot more sparingly than the industry would lead you to believe um and i feel like making more natural sounds and immersing yourself in their zone is a much it's a much more successful strategy. It has been for me at least. Um, and then the other side of the coin is, is that you live to fight another day if it doesn't work. You know, if you go push it in on a group and you're bugling like hell at them or whatever, and you blow the deal, man, I mean, they're, they're moving on. You know, these things just don't go around the corner. They, <laughs> they go a while. You know, and now you've just you've just basically reduced your chance because now you're going to have to spend your next day or your next rest of your day or your next two days relocating those elk or different elk and getting back into the game again. So my strategy has been a practice of restraint uh, until it's just no other option. And when there is no other option, then you push. Um, but that's, I don't know, that's just the way I do it. Maybe I'm old and lazy and it just kind of 
works better in my favor. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, you're selling me on my own hunting style. I, I, th- I swear sometimes <laughs> I'm the only guy that pushes leaving the calls in the truck. And you're right. There, more bulls are killed by calls than any other method out there. But you have to catch those elk in the in the, the right attitude, in the right setting, in the right part of the rut. Like everything has to be so perfect. And you're right, that 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 quiet spot and stock game, I, I love what you said, like live to fight another day. Um, and, and I've seen it time and time again. I saw it this season where, gosh, there was a 100 elk and six different bulls and they were going crazy. And I thought I was the only person that knew where they were. And so I started to close in on them. And then pretty soon I see two guys going up the bottom. And as they begin to call, they chased every elk out of that woods and never got an opportunity at them, even though they were rutted up or fired up. And so uh, I'm with you. You're almost sounding the alarm. And I get it. Like, guys, when you're calling, it's really exciting and really thrilling, and especially to get interaction back from an elk and he's bugling back at you. But the majority of times that bull is rounding up his harem of cows and he's just moving away from you and then you're chasing that bull. And I don't think guys recognize that a lot of times they're starting that process. And if you can just let elk be elk, they rut like crazy. You still get that same thrilling hunting. It's just moving in and keeping that element of surprise and letting those elk rut. But uh, yeah, I think it's way better tactics um, you know, and, and, and also I think it's a fallback for guys. I think if they're not getting into elk, they think, well, I'll make a bugle on this ridge or, you know, I, these elk, you know, they don't look like I can get in on them. I'm going to try to call them in and they try to call them. But boy, once you commit to being silent, keeping that element of surprise, you know, and I also think the guys that call a lot, kill a lot of satellite bulls, a lot of bulls well, that are, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. A lot of bulls. A lot of young bulls are killed with calls, but not big bulls. You're right. Not yeah. those big herd bulls. And, you know, you may catch those big herd bulls one, two days out of the season when they're in the right mood to go track down your call, or you get to the right position and make a couple calls, you know, just like that lost cow or something, and it works. But for me, I just do way better the same tactics as you, is where I just. I keep that element of surprise and keep moving with the herd and waiting for my opportunity. And and so, you know, I've, I've started to, to preach that, the, the being quiet to elk. I just think it's a way better tactic to kill those big herd bulls um, than, than, yeah. than calling at them. I just absolutely love it. So uh, I, I believe in, in, in your theories and in, in the way you hunt elk wholeheartedly. Well, uh, I will say another method that's super effective uh, when utilizing calls and calling is a term that everybody hunts hunts with me thinks it's hilarious, but I call it the booby hatch. And um, so if there's two hunters and a caller, uh, I don't ever do the push your two hunters up forward and have the caller behind calling, which is the standard modus operandi. Um, what I do is, is I say, okay, if you guys are going to go try to call this bull, I'm going to, all right, I'm, I'm, we're looking at the group of elk. We're looking at the herd. You know, this bull's pushing other bulls off, whatever's happening. I'm going to look at that and say, okay, if I don't know where their flight path is, I'm going to try to figure it out. So I'm going to say, okay, if you guys are going to make your approach and you're going to call from this direction, 
I'm going to try to identify what I call as the booby hatch. Where are they going to flee? Where are they going to gather up and haul butt to get away from the guys calling? Whether the they're just afraid of the call or wind changes, whatever. So where is the booby hatch? And so that's the way I incorporate calling when I'm, you know, hunting with guys is I'll say, you know, either I'll go with the caller or you go, but there's the other guy. He may be a mile away. That's okay. You know, you may be a half mile away. You may be all the way across the canyon, but if if you bump that herd, where do you think they're going to go? Well, I think they're going to go right up the side of this, say, this cliff, and they're going to go right over that saddle right there directly away from you. And so that's where I'll go set up or someone else will go set up. So you've basically got the booby hatch covered. And that is where I've killed more bulls with calling than actually calling them to us is actually pushing them away and somebody being on that escape route. Um, that has been extremely successful. Um, and for guys that have hunted certain areas, you know, year after year, and you're very familiar with it and you've, you know, bumped a herd in a basin before. And every time you've done it, they go right up this, you know, this cliff or this saddle or whatever. That's where somebody should be. You should have those those points covered. So that that's been extremely successful. I don't know that a lot of people do that, but um, it's worked great for us. Oh, that's great thinking. Gosh, yeah, you're you're right. Like elk have this flow through country in a way they move through country, and I've definitely tapped into the flow through country and how they move through. I can't say that I've implemented that. Like I use that on mule deer quite a bit, uh, yes. where I'm hunting with a buddy. And one guy will be up for the stock, and then the other guy tries to call where he's going to escape to and sets up in that spot. So we've definitely been successful doing it on mule deer, but I have never used that for elk. Uh, That that is a great tactic. I really like that. Yeah, And it's a good way to get everybody involved on one herd of elk, so you're not just moving in a big mass and you're all in the, the same spot. And there's nothing better than having a herd of elk moving at you, and especially when you have some mobility where you're That's on right. a ridge and you can see them coming and you can move to the left or right to intersect That's exactly them. exactly right. But, you know, these animals, you know, as much as we'd like to believe, you know, and camo patterns do help and they help, uh, you know, hide our silhouettes and things, but animals pick up on movement. It is all That's about it. movement and being still. And so if you can get yourself set up, it doesn't matter if you're set up in the wide open by a piece of sagebrush. The, these elk most likely are not going to see you if you don't make any movement. And then they come right by you in bow range. I love that, Brian. That is a great tactic. I can see where that's really worked for you. Well, and the other thing that happens is is that um, these, these elk are – so let's say they're alerted and they're bumped, okay? They see you, they spook, they smell you, whatever. Now in their brain, danger is in that one spot, and they're moving away from that person, hunter, whatever it is, predator. Now they focus their danger zone to that one spot, and they're moving away from it. And as they're moving away from it, that is where danger is registered, so they're going away, they're looking back. They're not, now where they're heading is not potential danger. That's the safety. That's the, the, the flight. So once 
any kind of animal gets bumped or spooked or scared and they've identified that something is there that they don't like, they get focused on that. And they're not focused on you if you're up ahead of them. And so you're you're dealing with animals that are almost not looking for you. It, it's just an incredibly more, um, I wouldn't say a more relaxed animal. They're not relaxed, but they're just not focused on looking where they're going because they've got danger in a certain spot behind them already registered. So I think we give them a little too much credit, you know, for being these super intellectual beings, you know. So, um, and one of the things that really sent me down this path years ago is the the invention of the turkey de- decoy. Um, when they first came out, I mean, you could kill a big longbeard with a tennis racket. They just gave it up, you know. Um, but very quickly, turkeys adapted to, I'm not sure about that decoy set out in the middle of the field. You know, that doesn't look right. And so now the way I turkey hunt, I, I just take people. I don't really do it much myself anymore, but I still take a lot of guys. But I use the decoy basically as a bumper. I'll put the decoy out in front of me where I'm calling right out in front of me. And then I'll put the hunter totally away from that. So where I know that bird is going to come out, he's going to get where he can see where he hears the calling from, see the decoy, but he's going to stay down there and say, if you want to come to me, here I am. And a bull is the exact same way. Um, He's going to come to a point where he can see see to the other side of the meadow, see through the timber. When he gets to that point where he can see and he knows that he can see past where that sound's coming from and he doesn't see what he's looking for, he's not coming anymore. You know, they're not coming on faith. They want to see it. That's why you have your shooter way ahead of your caller. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's the same way these animals are so smart based on the pressure they've had to adapt to that, you know, if you start using their sense of flight and security against them as part of your tactic, like using a bumper on a turkey and putting a decoy out, knowing that you're going to push him to the other side of the field where the hunter is, or using an escape hatch, an escape route, you know, to basically set up on elk. You're using the things that they've adapted to beat you against them. You're, you're beating them at their own game. And that's been incredibly successful for us. So just kind of thinking outside the box, you know, that is thinking outside the box. That makes complete sense as you explain it like that. And um, gosh, what a smart approach. Like our biggest asset as hunters, you know, we talked about patience, but our biggest asset is to be able to theorize and strategize and be able to learn from these animals. And, and I love, reason. Yeah, I love your last statement, uh, uh, using their defense against them, you know, uh, their tactics that they've developed to avoid hunters. Uh, using that against them and and trying to to seize an opportunity that way, man, I absolutely love that, Brian. That's um, that strategy to the next level. That is that is really uh, thinking a lot about the game and 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 how to create opportunities. Man, I I can see how that's worked for you in the past. What a great tactic! Absolutely, yeah, that's wild. So so coming. So you've been traveling out west for all these years. What would you say 
it's different. Like I live out West and get to train out West and I'm sure you're doing a lot of the same things that I'm doing to prepare yourself for hunting season. But, but what do you think is a bit different for guys that are coming from the East coast or coming from someplace other than the West to prepare for one of these big adventure hunts? Cause it is drastically different, right? It is. It's, um, so one of the things is to me, knowing your limitations as an Eastern hunter, as it compares to a Western guy. So for you, you have the opportunity to live and train at elevation. Um, my house is, uh, nine feet above sea level. Oh, wow. I live on the water. So, <laughs> okay. um, I don't have the ability, you know, to train at altitude. Um, we don't have, a lot of the guys don't have the opportunity to do, extended climbs uh with elevation you know um they don't we don't have the elevation gain and loss so there are certainly ways that you can physically prepare to hunt out west but for me the better strategy was to be very realistic as to what my limitations are um as an eastern hunter and approach the hunt knowing that I am a lesser, you know, performer than a guy that lives at six, 8,000 feet and trains at six and 8,000 feet. So, you know, you guys are pros. I'm minor league. That's okay. I can still play. But by doing that, going into it with the mindset that you know that you're not the equivalent of guys that live out there, um, you, you, you take that approach into every step you make. So for me, uh, when I hunt with a Western guy, I really struggle because, you know, I know that I need to go drop into this basin and climb the other side and straight, you know, shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So you go A to B. For me and a lot of Eastern guys, we can't do the A to B that you guys do. And when we try to do it, what we end up doing is we end up stressing our body muscles to a point to where we might survive that day, but the next day we're frogged out and we can't do anything. And so a lot of guys will come out West and try to do what they see people doing. Just a second. And, you know, on a regular basis out West and they end up really, limiting their ability to have a good hunt over a long period of time. So for me, it's not A to B. It's okay. What is going to be the best course to get to where I want to go with the least amount of stress on my body? So it may be a mile straight across, but it may be two miles for me to walk the ridge all the way around the rim of this basin. That's better for us. Um, we live to fight another day. Uh, so that is super important. Uh, the other thing is, as far as the gear and listening to podcasts and how much weight guys carry, it, we're not in the same league because we don't have the opportunity to practice that in the, in the basically game situations the way you do. You guys get to go out and practice, you know, in a game time situation anytime you want where we don't. So, for guys that are saying, hey, I try to keep my pack to 50 pounds, well, that's great for a Western guy. 
For an Eastern guy, maybe 35. You, you, you may not be able to do the same things, you know? Um, so those are the things to keep in mind is knowing your limitations so you can actually perform. When we were talking earlier about finding those pockets, you know, where those animals have found sanctuary away from pressure, what, I, what I've learned is, is that those pockets necessarily aren't always the deepest one in. It may be right off the road. Um, and for example, this year, we found elk not where I normally have hunted them for 20 years in a certain unit way back in because now there were tons of people way back in. The elk were literally living on the, the, the slope or the mountainside directly above the road. And it took me seven days to figure out that they were right there off the road. They were not far back. So those pockets are not always the furthest away. Sometimes they're right under your nose. And so that is one, one thing to learn. And then the other thing that I would tell guys is coming from the east to the west, there's great hunting out west that is not wilderness area. There's a lot of hunting that is road accessible, ATV accessible, um, what have you. There's a lot of good hunting in those types of areas as well. You don't have to do the major pack-in to have the experience. And by doing that, you're going to be able to perform at a higher level based on your capabilities. And the other thing that I do is I spend, because you only have a certain window to hunt because you're coming from so far away. Basically your scouting and your hunting are commensurate with each other. It's this, it's happening, you know, at the same time. So I spend a lot of time at night walking trails, walking ridges, or if you're hunting in units where you have vehicle access, you know, good road systems covering ground at night because the elk will tell you, where they are and what general area they're in at night way better than they will during the day. And, you know, have dinner, put your boots on, put your headlamp on, get your GPS or whatever you're using and, you know, walk two or three miles up a trail, up a ridgeline and listen and then walk back. I have found more elk at night than I ever have during the day in tough units. And then you know where to start the next day and start trying to dissect how they're working in that area, where they're feeding, where they're hiding, where their water is. But if you don't ever know where to start because you can't find them, it's just a bow hike at that point. And that's such great advice that applies, you know, not only to Eastern guys, but to Western guys. All those same rules apply to Western guys as well. So I I love that statement of hunting during dark. That's where a lot of my success comes from as well. And and you have to almost get on the elk schedule and realize the middle of the day, they're not active. And so morning and night, yes, everybody knows that. But that, that nighttime after dinner, like you talked about, going and hiking in and listening for them, they're going to tell you where they're at in that rut activity. And so then you can put yourself in those elk. Um, so that's, that's actually, and you get on those elk schedule. It's good to take a nap in the middle of the day 
and then start your hunt two hours before light in the morning. And one of my buddies killed a great big bull this year that he found at 4.30 in the morning bugling and just tailed that bull until it got light. And then he actually tailed him throughout the morning, bedded him, stayed with him all day, and then killed him that evening, which was just incredible. So I just love that tip. And I love that tip that you're giving everybody about knowing your limitations. Um, You know, even me, I train like a madman and I'm capable of a lot in the mountains But I know if I overdo it, and, you know, mine is usually 10 to 15 miles a day, about two to 3,000 feet in elevation. I can sustain that day after day. But if I redline or do more than that in a day, like, I'll exhaust myself. And and fatigue makes cowards of us all. If we get tired, we're not going to make as good of decisions. We're not going to want to hike over the next hill. Like, Like, fatigue is real, and it affects all of us. And so if I burn myself out one day... I know that the next couple days I'm going to pay for it. I'm not going to be as motivated. I'm not going to have as good an attitude. My body's not going to feel as good. So if I can just keep it in that window uh, of effort every day and get a good night's sleep or get decent sleep, I know the next day I can push that hard. It's like this sustainable effort, and it, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so I just think that's such great advice for Eastern guys, and I think it apply, uh, applies to us guys out West too. Um, man, you've got such great insight into Western bow hunting, Brian. I have really enjoyed this conversation. That's been a lot of fun for sure. It's, uh, certainly a pleasure to get to talk to you. I, I love following what you're doing and, um, I just, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I like seeing guys that, that year after year, very consistently have success and, I guess I I gravitate to guys like that because I know what it actually takes to have that consistency in it. It's not luck. (laughs) That's for for damn sure. Man, uh, well, it's so great to talk to you. So Day 6 Arrows, man, um, it's so fun to see your company with a grassroots start do so well, and I can see why. Like, they're built by a really good bow hunter that thinks of all the little things. So that's the reason why you have great components, great shafts. That's the reason why you have those steel outserts that weigh 100 grains or weigh 150 grains. Like, that's an elk hunter. That's an elk arrow that you're building or a trad arrow, like you say. And they're good for all game, but it's no surprise to me that Day 6 Gear is doing really well. And it's really fun to meet the man behind it. So uh, thank you, Brian, for sharing so much insight. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again, bud. Okay. All right, guys, that's a wrap told you wasn't that a great conversation man i really hit it off with brian um the guy is really knowledgeable he's got like this this analytical mind you know that that really thinks and breaks down things and tries to improve just everything that i'm all about in bow hunting so i learned a ton from that conversation uh just a great back and forth thanks again to to brian for taking the time and being on I also want to thank our sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Everly Stock Packs, and I want to thank Sitka Gear. Thanks to those guys for their support of the podcast. And uh, thanks to Eastman's as well for the support of the podcast and everything they do. Uh, it's just great to, to, to have a, a, a place in such a great company and have a place for all my content, where the writing and, and filming and podcasts, they support uh, that other podcast I have, Eastman's Flycast. If you're into fly fishing, check that one out. And um, yeah, it's just great to be part of the team, and I really appreciate it. 
And uh, with that, gosh, I, oh, you probably heard I had a cold last week. Oh, I haven't been sick in years. Um, I got a little too cocky around the house. Uh, so my daughters came down with it, and then my wife had it. And gosh, I mean, you know, you're in constant contact with your family anyways, but I was throwing caution into the wind. I think I, you know, I was taking a steam with my wife, and I was drinking out of her glass, and I, I just... Um, I have such a strong immune system, I thought my body would fight it off, but, uh, you know, every once in a while, there's that sickness that comes through that just has has your number, had my number anyways, so it wasn't too bad, I um, and I may have caused it myself, I went, I started feeling a sore throat, and so I took a, a two days off running, excuse me, took two days off running, and uh, started feeling real good, I thought I'd kicked it, no more sore throat, uh, wasn't showing any symptoms or anything like that. So of course it's back on the trails, back for another run. And I went for a good one and running is really good for the immune system. At least everything that I've read, uh, that it, that it does boost your immune system, but putting that exertion on your body, it makes your immune system dip and then it comes back stronger than it was before. But while you're fighting off a cold, that is not when you want to dip your immune system. And that's exactly what I did. I went for a big run in the in the snow, and then, uh, yeah, I took a turn for the worse for a couple days. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It's just a freaking cold, right? But, uh, yeah, just um, stuffed up. Of course, I had a bunch of podcasts scheduled last week. A couple of them I rescheduled, and then I powered through a couple of them. Hopefully, they're they're not bad podcasts. They were great conversations. It's just me trying not to be stuffed up on them. Uh, but I, I am through my sickness now. I'm back on the trails running, been running the last couple days and, uh, lifting and things and, uh, working hard towards my goals. Finally feel like I got my strength back and just a pounding headache there for a couple days. But, um, like I say, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. You just, I just hate being sick. And, um, you know, when I am sick, it, uh, makes me appreciate feeling good. Like it'd be tough to be, you know, I talk about being driven and putting in the work. Boy, if if I had cancer or something or you, you just, uh, you know, going through chemo or you just feel miserable every day, it would be really tough. And and I think that's the way that that we can, you know, we can almost get used to the way we feel. And um, I don't know. I just I just feel f- so fortunate that that I feel good each and every day. And it just wants, it makes me want to work that much harder to feel good every day, enjoy every day. And uh, so I'm back on the trails and back on the weights and um, feeling really good about things. Uh, Went out with my daughter, did that successful hunt with her. That was just absolutely amazing. Uh, Great to have a an adventure partner and at 12 years old, you know, she's a tough kid. She can, she can walk and deal with the cold and then, yeah, to, to be able to be, calm, cool, and collective in that moment and make a tough shot uh, on a good rest. We've been practicing with her rifle and things, but to make a good shot like that on her best deer to date and um, proud old dad sitting right behind her doesn't get much better. And and the day we had was so epic too, where we were just down and in country making plays on bucks and scooting around this way and it didn't work and back out and keeping out of sight. The buck she did kill you know, we had to crawl a good 50 yards to get to where we could set up. Had another buck off to our left we were trying to avoid. It was just one of those those magical days in the woods. And to be able to share it with my daughter was amazing. So uh, that was really cool. So I'm coming off a lot of highs, coming off the hunting season here. It's just been an amazing year. I just love it so much. 
And um, sure appreciate the support from you guys. And really stoked to get after some late season November muleys here. Uh, they're going to be rutting. It's one of the most exciting times to hunt mule deer. Uh, going to look for you know a real dark horn, heavy buck, and uh, see what I can turn up and see if I can't get a perfect arrow into one. Got that that bow shooting really good. I've been working on some new arrows here. Um, some um, got just some awesome arrows. I got them flying really good. So excited about that. And um, yeah, just keep this thing rolling. So November mule deer, here I come. I've got some some good ample time. I'm more of a weekend warrior, but I can add a day or two here or there. I know I'm trying to get uh, a lot of things done on the with the construction company right now. We're trying to get a couple houses, get the foundations in, so we can work away in the winter. And it's just like a whole process, just with the architect and bids and um, getting everything ironed out so we can hit the ground running here. So been working hard on those, but um, loving life, that's for sure. It's a great time of the year. Man, cold this weekend. I feel bad for the general season rifle hunters. It was like, with the wind chill, it was negative 20 or something like that this weekend. Man, oh man, that is cold. Uh, but... Uh, favor fortunes the bold. You got to be out there to get them. And uh, I was not out there this weekend. We'll wait till till next weekend and start hitting it hard for these muleys. But super stoked. Well, this is not a solo podcast. Just venting to you guys or letting you know what's going on in my life. So, um, man, that's a wrap. What a great podcast with Brian Broderick. I really appreciate him sharing his knowledge that he's earned over, you know the the last years or whatever man oh man it's just great information outside the box thinking uh yeah i really like that guy that was a fun podcast so thanks to him and thanks to you guys for the support um gosh i got some great ones coming up so um stay tuned and uh yeah thanks a bunch eastman's elevated <laughs>